0: We have now reached the point in the COVID-19 crisis where we are having a fierce nationwide debate about reopening the economy. Unfortunately, as has so often been the case in this crisis, we're having entirely the wrong debate. Forget about coming up with the right answers. At the moment, I'm not even sure we're asking the right questions. So how should we be thinking about this very complex policy challenge? Certainly not in the Hyperpartisan bromide-driven conversation that we're having right now. There are some very serious issues that we need to think through. There are no perfect solutions, and ultimately, policymakers are faced with possibly the most complex and difficult challenge in recent American history. I'm Dr. Nolte, and this is Blind Politics. And hello, podcast listeners, and welcome to another provocative and hard-hitting episode of Blind Politics with Dr. Nolte. I am A.J. Nolte, Professor of Government here at Regent University's Robertson School of Government. Once again, as always, views expressed in this podcast do not represent those of Regent University or the Robertson School of Government. You can rate and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google, Stitcher, or your other favorite podcast provider, please do rate and subscribe. You can find us on Facebook at Blind Politics, Instagram at Blind Politics, and Twitter at Blind Pol Nolte. And that is N-O-L-T-E for those wondering how to spell my last name. Like Nick Nolte if you're old enough to catch that reference. So I hope you all enjoyed the recent COVID-19 webinar series. The links to those live streams can still be found on the Facebook page and yours truly was fortunate enough to moderate one of those panels, a panel looking at what's next sort of the future of the COVID-19 landscape. Welcome those of you who are listening to this podcast, having encountered us for the first time because of that webinar series, and thank you very much for tuning in. If you want my specific thoughts on that question of what does post-corona look like, we did a podcast on that a couple of weeks ago. When I started this podcast in the initial introductory episode with all of its scratchy bad sounding sound quality and things falling over in the background and all of the the bugs that those of you who have been following this long enough will remember from that first episode one of the things that i was adamant about and part of the reason i picked the blind politics name aside from the pun on my own lack of sight is the fact that we have reached such a hyper-partisan age that sometimes we can't even talk about the issues that we need to talk about without this filter that puts things in a pro or anti-Trump lens. And, it get, and things get put in that blender to the point where policy issues that really have nothing to do with personal identity end up becoming wrapped up in your conception of who you are because of how you feel about Donald Trump. And this podcast has been pretty relentless in trying to not talk about Trump too much. Not necessarily because I am pro or anti, but because I don't think that's a helpful lens for looking at most of the issues that we have to deal with domestically, let alone internationally. And one of the things that I was hoping to do with this podcast is move beyond the partisan lens and really look at what's behind the issues that we're talking about. So be, you know, just in the same sense that justice is blind, the idea of blind justice, we're going to try to look at politics in that same way, that is blind to the partisan lens. And God knows in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis, we need that more than ever. Since this has started, the things that have become partisan footballs that should not be partisan footballs are as follows. Number one, your beliefs about certain drug treatments, particularly hydrochloroquine. Now, as of this writing, we still don't know to what extent that's going to be an effective treatment, but it shouldn't be a Republican or a Democratic treatment. Either it works or it doesn't, and it doesn't really matter. You know, hydrochloroquine doesn't care whether you're a Trump supporter or you're a Trump opponent. It either has certain effects or it doesn't, right? So we shouldn't have partisan opinions about the efficacy of drug treatments, all right? That is just one example. Other things are China. I've noticed to a certain extent that people who are more opposed to the president have been holding back a bit in their critiques of China because there there seems to be this fear. I don't know that if you say bad things about China China, this somehow lets Donald Trump off the hook, You you can hold two beliefs at the same time. One, that the president didn't necessarily handle the crisis very well when it started. Two, that the Chinese government made mistakes that probably cost hundreds of thousands of lives and trillions of dollars. Those two things are, those two claims are not mutually exclusive. Is President Trump almost certain to try to use China to, you know, pivot in his campaign and sort of, you know, pivot to an anti-China position in his campaign? Yes. The fact that Trump says it doesn't mean that it's true or false. You know, the fact that Donald Trump thinks that chloroquine is great doesn't mean that chloroquine will work or won't. The fact that Donald Trump thinks that Xi Jinping is a terrible person doesn't mean that he is or isn't, right? These are objective facts. And Donald Trump's belief or non-belief in these things doesn't make them true or false. Okay, so that's the first problem that we have. The second problem that we have is that everyone right now is, is looking at this debate that we're currently having. So I'm going to go pivot back to the opening, the debate about the opening of the economy. And everybody is trying to use this debate to play gotcha politics and try to confirm prior assumptions, right? You know, the most common line that I've heard that is kind of silly is the idea that you know, people who are politicians that are advocating for reopening the economy are not really pro-life because reopening the economy is going to cost people their lives. This is a disingenuous argument. It's it's it, frankly completely disingenuous. And this is not coming from, some, you know, coming from someone who thinks that some of the, the rhetoric about reopening has been overblown. I don't necessarily think you can say that a person who is opposed to abortion, who is pro-life on that issue, who believes that the sanctity of life is the foundation of politics, necessarily, if they support opening the economy right now, doesn't care about human life and doesn't have a consistent human life ethic. Anytime you're dealing with policy issues like this, you're balancing harm. And there are prudential calculations that come into play. Because, as as I'll talk about in a second, when you start getting into decisions about reopening the economy and public health and things like this, any policy decision you make is going to cost lives. There is no policy decision that you can make that will not, as a consequence, mean that some people die. That's how situations like this work. Okay. So there's no, we there, the, you know, some people have, have used examples like the Titanic in talking about the Joe Biden, Tara Reid thing. It was, there was an analogy about you can't expect people to act civilized in a shipwreck. Okay. I think that's a silly analogy for Joe Biden of all people in terms of this whole, Tara Reid thing, which we're not going to get into, the, in, get into in this podcast. For those who haven't been following, this is about Joe, Joe Biden and sexual harassment allegations, not about the actress from the critically acclaimed. And if you have not already watched it on Netflix, you should movie Sharknado. Sharknado is, is a classic of American cinema. And of course, Tara Reid is an actress in that this is a different Tara Reid. And we're also not talking about that. But I bring this up because the shipwreck analogy is useful in some ways. When you are talking about responding to this COVID crisis, okay, the ship has been hit. It has been hulled below the waterline and you're trying to figure out how many lifeboats you can get launched. You're not going to be able to save everyone. That's the reality of the situation that we're in. So claiming that, you know, making a prudential calculation on this that is different than yours is somehow not pro-life is disingenuous. Claiming that people who don't want to open the economy right now don't care about the jobs of working people and how can you really say that you're pro-worker you know, while you're saying you don't want to, that's also disingenuous, okay? Nobody wants to wreck the American economy. It's, you know, it's not as though people who are opposed to President Trump have decided, let's try to trash the American economy so Trump doesn't get reelected. You trash the American economy and Trump not getting reelected is the least of the things that will happen as a result of that. You'll also have an economy that's trashed. Right? Nobody has like gone into this with the idea of let's wreck the American economy and have unemployment that as is at the level that it's that it has not seen since has that has not been seen since the Great Depression. Okay, this is not like anybody's policy outcome by design. So you're essentially playing gotcha politics a lot here, having arguments that are disingenuous a lot. And the problem is amidst all of this, we're not even talking about the issue in a way that actually addresses the question that we need to be addressing. And this is the final aspect of this that I think is worth keeping in mind in like terms of how this whole debate has been phrased. We are personal creatures as human beings. We think about politics in terms of people that we know. So you're thinking about COVID right now in terms of my elderly grandma who is high risk, right? You you might be thinking about grandma. Or you're thinking about your neighbor who own, owns the hardware store who is not going to be able to reopen, who's going to have to fire all his workers who might go bankrupt, right? And depending on which part of the country you live in, you either know a lot more people who are at high risk for COVID if you're in an urban area, or you know a lot more people who are at risk for losing their jobs than if, if you're in a rural area, right? Now, there are people who are at risk from COVID in, in rural areas, and there are people who are at risk from losing their jobs in urban areas. But urban high-density areas have been the most impacted by the pandemic, so it is more likely that if you live in that area, you know people who've been impacted. Vice, in more rural areas or suburban areas, infection rates are much lower. However, the economic pain is something that you can see all around you. Okay, so I'm not even saying that people who have very, very different opinions about this don't have those opinions from very real experiences that they're having right now. And those experiences are valid. You know, If you're from an area that's high density with cases, you're seeing people dying. And you're seeing people at risk of dying. And if you're in an area that has low density of cases, you're not seeing that, but you are seeing people have having economic pain. And our immediate empathetic response is, I see these people suffering, and we need to do whatever we can to fix that. So we personalize these things, we personalize them, and we think about things like, is this going to affect my grandma? You know, is this going to crush the dreams of Bob, my neighbor, who owns a hardware store? But that is not the terms in which these policy decisions will ultimately get made. Because the reality is the government could do everything perfectly, and I'm not saying they have or will, but the government could do everything perfectly, and people are going to lose their grandparents, and people are going to lose their businesses. There's only a certain amount to which the government can actually mitigate those personal tragedies, because we are in the midst of a pandemic. We're in the midst of something that we've never seen before, and we've taken unprecedented steps that put the economy in jeopardy to try and slow the effect of that. Those personal tragedies aren't things the government in and of itself can fix. So what is the responsibility of the government in this? I would say it is mostly systemic. Okay, There are things that we take for granted as people living in a modern post-industrial era. Things like the ability to go to the grocery store and buy food from half a world away. Things like the ability to go to the hospital and be able to get treated for whatever is wrong with you. We take these things for granted because 90% of the time living in the United States, you have access to those things. But those things exist because of very complex, finely tuned systems and institutions and structures that provide us those goods that we take for granted. And that is what all of this government policy is working to maintain. When everybody decided we needed to lock down, the point was not by doing this, we were going to stop COVID. That was never on the table. Anybody who argued that staying at home in social isolation was going to stop this thing was not paying attention to what the experts were even saying at the time. And granted, the communication on this thing has been a disaster from, from everyone, and oftentimes for good motives, right? So when, you know, getting people to stay at home, getting people to self-isolate is very difficult. So what's the messaging? Stay at home, save lives. Stop the spread. okay. That's the public message that comes out. Why? Because it's very difficult to convince people to do something that is as unnatural as socially isolate yourself. It's very difficult to convince people that something that is that unnatural is actually going to be beneficial, right? So we ramped up and said, this is going to save lives. Did it? Yes. Yes, it did. But not for the reason that social isolation is going to stop the spread. It slows the spread. And the reason that it will save lives is because the entire lockdown, the entire purpose of the strict social isolation and stay-at-home orders was to preserve the healthcare system. That was the purpose. Because we got caught in a situation where the healthcare system was not prepared for the volume of people that were likely to come through if there was a massive number, a massive surge in severe COVID cases at one point, at one time. This would have potentially overwhelmed the healthcare system. Why would this happen? Because there weren't enough stockpiles, because there simply wasn't enough capacity. And you know, part of that is there's only so much you can ramp up capacity immediately in terms of emergency room beds, ventilage, all those types of things, right? That was the issue. And also there wasn't enough testing. Is that a governmental failure? Yes. Is that a governmental failure that is sort of malicious? No. It's it's Almost certainly based on, there's been some excellent reporting on this, it was almost certainly a failure caused by just a normal bureaucratic screw up that would happen in any kind of system. And it just happened in the most catastrophic time possible. There's a theory in organizational management called normal accidents theory. Normal accidents theory is that every time you try to do something, you do something a hundred times, you're going to have a normal rate of accidents, which is about one out of every hundred times something's going to get screwed up. Right. So we can also think about normal bureaucratic accidents theory. It's probably higher in bureaucratic organizations. If it just so happens that one of those accidents comes in the midst of a crisis and hampers crisis response, it can turn something that would be a normal accident into a disaster. And a lot of the literature on this is related to command and control of nuclear weapons. But it's also applicable, I think, to pandemics in the sense that the normal accident that happened was by a normal bureaucratic process, testing all got concentrated in the hands of the CDC. And then the CDC had a normal accident in the process of developing their test. And because everything was put through CDC because of the way the state of emergency was structured, there was no competing model of testing. And that set testing back in the United States by weeks, if not months. And that was critical. Okay. So you have a just normal, the screw up fairy happens, right? Thing combined with An unintended consequence of a well-meaning invocation of a law screws up testing. You also have a system that is not prepared for pandemics because it would not make sense to operate the healthcare system with the kind of extra capacity that you would need for a pandemic. It would would be massively inefficient. And we have a very, very efficiency-focused system, perhaps too efficient, right? That's one system. Now, as we're talking about reopening, the question is not is reopening going to save all these people's jobs and fix the unemployment crisis? No, it's probably not. The reality is the government can tell you tomorrow it's safe to go out of your home and a good number of you are probably not going to do it because there are different levels of risk tolerance for different people, right? So anybody who's relying on business coming back from this, business is going to be down. And a lot of businesses operate on very thin profit margins. So a lot of businesses are going to get sideswiped even if everybody reopens tomorrow magically. Okay, because we don't have a cure for this. We don't have a working treatment for this yet. And it could be a while and we don't know. That's the other thing about the COVID crisis that is so frustrating is that even this far in, there's still a lot of uncertainties. And that's actually, again, normal in, in terms of combating infectious diseases. It takes a long time to actually build up scientific knowledge. You know, it's not like scientists can go in their science lab and whip up some science and then poof, there's a thing, right? And again, we have this like, blind faith in science without actually understanding how the process works often. And the process works in a very slow, deliberative, small-c conservative way where you don't say something is established scientific fact until you've tested it to nigh-on destruction. That's how science works. It is very slow. And because it is slow, it tends not to make as many mistakes. You can either do things mistake-free or error-free correctly. Thoroughly or quickly. And the problem is in a pandemic, you have to be fast. But if you're too fast and you make a mistake, then you can cause worse consequences. So again, even in terms of the infectious disease folks, they're balancing a lot of stuff. Plus they're dealing with something they've never dealt with before. It's a brand new disease. So they're even still like trying to figure out how it works, basic things about how it works. And that's going to take a while. So this is the environment we're going to be in. And a certain percentage of the population is not going to be very risk tolerant. So you're going to see a downturn in the economy, regardless. So why is it so important that people are now talking about reopening? Because the healthcare is not the only fragile system that we depend on. We also have supply chains. And what we're finding is that there's a lot less resiliency in our supply chain for even basic things like food than we thought. Our supply chains have become so efficient that they're literally designed to produce one very specific thing at a time. Okay, so if you've got a plant that's producing cheddar cheese for restaurants, it's geared up to produce 50-pound bags of cheddar cheese. And again, can't necessarily just pivot on a dime to produce five-pound bags of cheese for the grocery market. So you've got, on the one hand, there's not necessarily enough supply to meet the demand. On the other hand, the demand has radically shifted in terms of food supply. So the whole food supply chain gets messed up. Is it fixable? Yeah, it's potentially fixable. But not fixing it could have catastrophic problems because the U.S. is not, and you want to talk about lives lost, the U.S. is not just the supplier of food to the United States. The phrase about the U.S. being the breadbasket of the world is literal. We sent hundreds of thousands of tons of food in food aid to other parts of the world every year. What happens if that aid doesn't go out because our supply chain is messed up? That's a serious issue. By the way, an issue that I haven't heard anyone talking about. So you could have a food crisis in the midst of pandemic in the developing world. That's going to take lives. You know, in terms of the supply, the the other goods and services that are produced in the United States, with people on lockdown, all of those things are messed up. All of the supply chains are messed up. The the economy is in in a shape that it hasn't been in for a long time. And there are a lot of fragile systems that are dependent on the sort of prosperity and efficiency of the U.S. economy. Globally, domestically, many of our institutions take for granted that type of prosperity. Prosperity that is, by the way, in jeopardy because of this whole thing. So we're not talking about killing grandma or putting Bob out of a job. What we're talking about is how can we put as little strain on all of these complex systems that are being stressed to the max by the COVID crisis right now as possible. What is the policy mix that is going to save the most lives and save the most jobs at the same time. That is going to cause the least strain to the healthcare system and the least strain to the economy at the same time. It is a balancing act. And it is a very difficult and complex balancing act. And there's really almost no way to get it perfectly right. Governments are going to err too much on one side or err too much on the other. And we may never fully know the impacts and how changes would have, even slight changes, would have changed the outcome in a more positive direction. I say never know. I mean, I'm sure that there are going to be dissertations and, and theses and, you know, political scientists will after in the aftermath try to figure all that out. But it's going to be very, very complicated. And right now, policymakers don't have the benefit of hindsight. They're trying to make these decisions in the midst of massive uncertainty, balancing systems that have been incredibly stressed by all of this. In an election year, in an environment of hyperpartisanship, where people are filtering everything through a prior bipolar division of politics that frankly doesn't make a lot of sense right now. Okay, the reality is, if you let's say you you live in a blue state and you're a Republican and you're a supporter of Trump, right? You want your Democratic governor and your Republican president both to succeed beyond their your wildest imaginings because that means that the economy doesn't crash and people survive and things can kind of go back to some sort of normal where we can snipe about you know whatever trump said today that was trumpian or you know whatever biden said today that was a sort of biden word salad or you know whatever to even get back to that point we need everybody to succeed beyond their wildest imaginations and so it doesn't really matter what we think about the president personally He needs to get this right. It doesn't matter what we think about our local officials or our governors. They need to get this right. We all need them to do well on this. And we all need to be thinking about this in terms of institutions and systems. Because the government is not going to be able to ultimately craft a policy solution that is going to prevent people from getting COVID that is going to prevent people from losing their jobs, that is going to prevent these negative externalities. Even if the government, first of all, even if the government hadn't locked anybody down, do you think people would be flying on planes right now? Do you think people would be going out to restaurants? Do you think people would be going on cruises or taking part in a lot of social activities with this spreading? You know, people isolated themselves in times of pandemic long before there were governments to tell them to do so. It's kind of a natural human response. So, you know, yes, part of this is is motivated by government policies and is imposed by government policies, but part of it's just a natural process of this is what happens in a pandemic. Things go bad really fast. And so what could we learn from this? From a, a political perspective, we need to learn how to make our institutions and our systems more resilient to shocks. One of the things that we've learned is that there's a lot more fragility in our healthcare system, in our supply chains, in our economy, than we've realized. What do I mean by fragility? I mean that our system is so efficient that it does not have a lot of redundancies baked into it. And this kind of makes sense, right? Redundancies are by definition inefficient. Because redundancies mean you have multiple versions of things. And it's always efficient, it's always more efficient to not do that, to have everything serve one perfectly efficient purpose. But if you have something that has a lot of redundancies, and there's a shock to the system, then the redundant features, you know, can kind of chip in, right? If you don't, if you have something that's very, very efficient, and then something small goes wrong, it can cause cascading failures. So you can actually have a system that's too efficient. But then you have to balance that with the fact that building in that capacity for redundancy has costs. So prices of things go up. How much? And it's very easy for those who are in a more comfortable economic system and say, well, you know, if prices have to go up, prices have to go up. What about somebody who's on the poor end, where if the prices of goods go up and there's not a corresponding bump in economic productivity that leads them into a higher paying job, you know, that could mean the margin. So there are a lot of policy challenges even even moving forward to think about. This is something that came completely out of left field. Nobody was prepared for it. Nobody's handled it particularly well. Because there's no way to handle something like this particularly well. Some people have handled it less badly. But there's, there's really no way to look back and, and say, you know, the fact that we reduced the death rate is something to be proud of. No, because people still died, right? The fact that we reduced the jobless rate, the, the rate of people who lost their lives, is something to be proud of. No, people still lost their lives. Like, nobody's happy about this. Okay, nobody's really enjoying this this particular moment that we're in. And I think we need to step back and realize that we're looking at a lot of very imperfect solutions and very imperfect options. So what does that mean, practically speaking? Should we reopen the government or not right now? I don't know. I don't know. Neither do you. Neither do the people who are making the decisions, frankly. Nobody knows when the exact right Goldilocks moment is to reopen the economy. You know, Nobody knows perfectly how we balance the harm that we're doing from to our supply chain and to the economy with with the potential risks to the healthcare system. Nobody knows the answer perfectly. I think it's going to happen relatively soon. I think that that we're going to see a, a collective decision on the part of policymakers that they've done about as much as they can do to preserve the healthcare system without crashing the economy. So there's there's going to be a push to reopen. And I don't think it's going to be a Republican or Democratic thing. I think that that naturally we're coming to that cycle in, in the way this is going. Is it gonna cost lives? Yeah, it is. I mean that the, the reality of the situation is that once the economy reopens, there's gonna be a spike. And the question was never can we reopen the economy without a spike in COVID cases? That was never on the table unless some biolab in Israel miraculously discovered a vaccine that worked perfectly and they were able to conduct the fastest clinical trials in the history of human beings by creating some sort of you know futuristic artificial intelligence that came from the future and magically was able to run a clinical trials in a virtual simulated environment that proved, you know, after running this billions of times in a simulation in nanoseconds to a 100% degree of accuracy that this was a vaccine. You know, barring that happening, essentially barring a science fictional scenario, okay? there was always going to be a point at which we were going to have to reopen and accept the fact fact that there was going to be a spike in cases. The question always has been, and still is, in terms of determining whether it's the right time to reopen the economy or not. Is the healthcare system sufficiently prepared to deal with that inevitable spike when it comes so that we can minimize the the number of people who have serious issues or die from this? It is about saving lives. But it's not about preventing a spike. And you cannot prevent people from dying from this. People are dying from this even even now. You can prevent the death rates from going up too much higher. And again, that is a policy accomplishment, but it's not really one you can take pride in because people are still dying. So that's the situation that we're looking at. There's no perfect option. There's no option. There's no magic bullet. There's no wonder drug. There's no one thing the government can do that is going to fix this and make this go away. But here's what I can say. If we can look beyond the moment that we're in, if we can look beyond the tendency to personalize our tendency to confirm our priors and retreat to our political bunkers and our ideological bunkers and focus on this and really look at America as it currently exists, I think we are left to the judgment that regardless of who wins in November, regardless of how we move forward, we are going to come out the other end of this. Pandemics like this don't last forever. It's going to cause horrible damage to people's lives and to the economy. But we are going to come out the other side as a country, as a world. Will we come out stronger? Maybe, maybe not. Can we come out stronger? Yes, absolutely. We can. We can come out stronger. We can come out wiser. We can learn from this. And we can make sure that the response, of, regardless of, of party, Republican or Democrat, is better next time. We can make sure that if there's another incident like this, it is handled in a way that mitigates some of these problems at the beginning. We can learn from the mistakes that are being made right now in the future. And I think we will do that. You know, there's an old joke that Americans will do the right thing after exhausting all of their options. And I believe that is essentially correct. We will eventually get through this. We will eventually learn from it. We will eventually come out a stronger nation. But that will not change the fact that this is a time of tragedy. This is a time of suffering. This is a time when people's dreams and their lives are being lost. And so we're going to come out of this with some battle scars as a country, as families, as neighborhoods, as towns, because it is a crisis. And there's no getting around that. But we need to, even in the midst of this, keep focused on the right questions. Remember what government can do and what it can't. Understand that we are in the midst of something that has incredible uncertainties and imperfections. If you were a person of prayer, now's a good time for that. If you were a person of faith, now's a good time for that. If you were a person who has that sort of uncritical belief in science, I don't think you should have an uncritical belief in anything. But you can take comfort in the fact that science is working its way in the way that science does, which is you know, through half starts, bumbling, stumbling in the dark, but steadily toward solutions to this. And I've heard some people say, you know, vaccine could take 10 years for this. There has never, to my knowledge, been the sheer concentration of biologists and public health folks and and medical scientists focused on any one issue as there now is on COVID. So I don't think that it's going to take 10 years for a vaccine, which some people have said. Do I think it's right around the corner? No, but I I think, you know, sooner than some of the more pessimistic estimates expect, we are going to start to see some movement, some some green shoots. You know, this is not the end, folks. This is not the thing that's going to bring us down, but it, it can make us weaker. It can make us exacerbate some of the problems that we had before, and it can create new ones. And whether it does or not really doesn't depend on President Trump or Joe Biden or the governors or anybody else. It really depends on us. It depends on how we think about this. It depends on how we move forward. It depends on whether we are able to look beyond the tribes that we belong to, the groups that we belong to, and try to think about these issues and address these issues in a way that looks to the good of our fellow citizens as a whole, of our country as a whole, and rediscover that sense of being in this together. I know that's difficult right now because we're all isolated, but the fact is that we are all in this together. We're not all suffering the same things, but everybody is having a hard time right now. And so now is a good time to maybe have a little bit of grace and a little bit of forgiveness and a little bit of understanding and sympathy for people that we can go back to fighting about abortion, gay marriage, foreign policy, and marginal tax rates, like next week or whenever this ends. But for right now, they may not be suffering the same way we are, but they are. They're suffering. They're scared. They are worried about their family members, about their livelihoods, about lives being lost. We are all in this together because right now is not great for anyone. So we should at least be able to pull together around that. We should at least be able to recognize our common humanity in suffering in the midst of this. We should at least be able to recognize that as much as we may intensely dislike people on the other side of this politically, nobody's trying to kill grandma, okay? Nobody's trying to crush Bob's dreams of a hardware store. Everyone is just as lost and confused as we are, but they are making the best choices that they can, okay? So again... As I said in the religious freedom episode, now is the time for restraint. Now is the time for us to extend grace to people that we don't agree with, to pull together, to try to avoid all of the, frankly, ridiculous politicization of this that has been happening, and to recognize that for us to come out of this stronger, We're all going to have to embrace those best aspects of ourselves and put forward the best foot that we can, the best face that we can in the midst of this. You call me a crazy, wild-eyed optimist, but I think we can do it. I really do. I think that every time there is a crisis, after exhausting all of our options, Americans will do the right thing. And I think we'll figure it out. It's going to be tough. It is not at all going to be an easy next couple of months. But we will get through it together. And we will get through it by clear eyed, sober judgment, and also by not assuming the worst about people who disagree with us. If we could do those two things, I think we'd be at least 50 or 60% better in the way we're responding to this than we are right now. Before I close, there's one point I would like to clarify because. I imagine it might have been a little bit confusing. So toward the beginning of this podcast, I mentioned that social isolation to the degree that we've all been doing it is unnatural. It is an unnatural human behavior. And then later, I said that fleeing from the pandemic is a natural human response. So you might be thinking, how does that make sense? Well, first of all, pandemics are unnatural. So we behave in ways that are unnatural during a pandemic. Second of all, in terms of the initial flattening the curves to stop the spread, you know, stay at home to stop the spread argument, the idea was we wanted everyone to do this. Now, that is unnatural. Getting everyone in a society to stay home, even in a pandemic, is is not something that is going to naturally happen. And that is why the government put in place those coercive policies and frameworks. So I'm not saying that policy is right or wrong, that's, that's why it happened. However, There is a large segment of the population for whom that is the natural response to pandemics. And we have evidence of this going all the way back to Roman times. Anybody who could afford it was fleeing the city whenever there was a pandemic. You know, this is something that even if you look in American history, wealthy people, part of the reason they had places upstate, if they lived in New York City, for example, or places in Wisconsin, if they lived in Chicago, is because at certain times of year, The city was considered an unwholesome or unhealthy place to live. Why? Because you'd have outbreaks of things like yellow fever. And so people would flee the cities. So there is this sort of natural human response in pandemics. Not everybody did it because not everybody could afford it, but a significant portion of the population did. So what does this mean? Essentially, it means that even if we open tomorrow, there is a substantial segment of the population that is going to have that sort of natural hunker down response. But it also means that you know there there is another segment of the population that is generally more predisposed to risk. And those are the people for whom the stay-at-home order was put in place initially. And you know, those are also the folks who are probably going to be the first folks to come back out when the economy reopens. So there's some natural human variation here. Getting everyone to stay at home is unnatural, but a certain fairly large segment of the population. Avoiding other people and sort of fleeing from from mass populations in a pandemic. That's also a natural response. The last caveat that I put on this is just real quickly from a Christian perspective. Historically, Christians have always run toward the plague. We've always run toward those who are sick. We've always run to help. And so for Christians in particular, this has been a really difficult time. Because we have this built-in response in our religion that there are people who are sick and we need to run toward them and help and heal. And it's very difficult to not do that from a Christian perspective. It's very difficult to figure out how do we actually help our neighbor, how do we love our neighbor in the midst of this social distancing. And so this has been a real challenge, a real struggle for the church. And you know, my hope is that the church comes through this having learned lessons, but also stronger. That we come through this with a real understanding of how to do this in, in the future. And that you know, most churches and, and most religious folks are really having a good practical understanding but but a real focus of loving your neighbor and you see stories about this you don't see them often in the media because everybody wants to talk about that one pastor down in florida or the one pastor down in louisiana who you know wants to keep the church open and you know says that god will heal them of the coronavirus which sort of reminds me of the guy who's stranded on his roof and says that god's going to take him off and so you know he then ignores the canoe and the motorboat and the helicopter who all offer to evac him and he goes to heaven and says, God, why didn't you save me? And God says, I sent you a canoe, a motorboat, and a helicopter. What more do you want from me? But, you know, we don't hear about the Christian ministry that hands out free lettuce in Colorado Springs. We don't hear about Christian ministries that are finding new and creative and innovative ways to try and serve their neighbors and serve their communities in the midst of all of this. And so, you know, I, I do think the church is rising to the occasion. It tends to be what we do but this is a challenge. It is more challenging than a lot of past situations have been for for Christians and for the church. And, you know, it's something for us, particularly those who are from a Christian background to keep in mind, because we have to figure out how to do this right. Because, you know, from that Christian perspective, loving your neighbor and healing the sick and helping the poor are not conditional statements. They're not things that we do when when it's convenient. They're obligations. And so figuring out how we do that in this time is a real challenge. Okay, so that's a wrap for this episode. Not exactly the most cheerful episode that we have, but you know, it is It is what it is. This is the moment that we're in, and, and sometimes you just have to talk through these things. So I want to thank you all for listening. I am hoping that our next episode will be a return to a previous guest, Professor Josh Hasty, who is going to talk with us about China. A few things have changed with respect to the People's Republic of China since the last podcast that we did on that, and I think Josh Hastie's research may shed some interesting light on what kind of future relationship we can look at between the United States and China as we move forward from this. And, you know, after that, I think we're going to maybe, maybe we'll step back and do a little bit more political theory. You know, maybe, maybe I'll do an episode that's a little bit lighter. I mean, I think after this heavy corona affair, we could use that. I've been kind of mulling the idea of something about, you know, being stuck in quarantine at home with, with my toddler, three-year-old, who is a three-year-old toddler girl who's very girly. Maybe we'll have to talk about the politics of the Disney princesses or something. I don't know. But we're going to be here. I will be here crank, cranking out these podcasts the best that I can to get you through this crazy, crazy time. And uh, we're going to keep doing this as long. I'm going to keep doing this as long as um, as the, the folks up the chain at the Robertson School let me do it. So thank you again for listening. Please rate and subscribe. Share it to all your friends. You know, Pass the word. And for Blind Politics, this is Dr. Nolte signing off.